Welcome to Smart Talk, I'm Scott Lamar. Director Ron Howard's long-anticipated film about the Beatles called Eight Days a Week was released last week. It seems as though anytime there is something new featuring the Beatles, there is renewed interest in the world's most successful rock and roll band. On today's Smart Talk, we'll discuss the Beatles. Two years ago, I talked with Larry Kane, who is a news and broadcasting icon in the Philadelphia area, but also was the only American reporter to travel to every stop on the Beatles' 1964 American tour. Kane had just released his second book on the Beatles at the time called When They Were Boys, The True Story of the Beatles' Rise to the Top. My first question was about a reoccurring theme in the book, how fate helped the Beatles get to where they did. One of the things I took from your book, and I love the book, by the way, is one word that just kept coming up again and again was fate. That so many things had to happen for this all to come together, for the Beatles to rise from, and I'm not going to say poverty, we're going to talk about that in just a minute, but from their backgrounds in Liverpool to becoming the most influential rock and roll band in history. Fate is an understatement. I mean, we all go through fate in our lives. We meet somebody, uh, we marry them, we don't marry them. You know, we meet somebody, we become a, we become a, a career, we develop a career because we meet them. In their case, it was extraordinary because... When you think about it, everybody thinks it was a flash in the pan. Wow, they made it in two years. They started out, the real band started out when they were about 15-ish, 14, 15, and they didn't really make it till they were 23 or 20, in Paul McCartney's case, 22, 21. But th- what they went through is, is a, uh, a march to greatness that was interrupted by so many potholes and in some cases near abuse of their teenage status. When they went to Hamburg, for example, uh, they lived in a bathroom. They were uh, treated every day, every other day, with penicillin because they were uh, engaging the services in where they lived of working women, and not the kind of working women that you and I know, Scott. Uh, they were beaten up by nightclub goons to work harder. They were given preluding pills to to stay up late at night, and then, and you couldn't make this up. They met a, a convicted killer who became their protector. Horst Foscher, a young man who, who knocked a kid out, a sailor, and killed him. A- add to that the sequence of J- Paul McCartney and Pete Best, their original and, by the way, great first drummer, being arrested uh, for uh, starting a fire at a nightclub, which they didn't do. John Lennon being uh, taken into custody for stealing a harmonica, which he did. Uh, G- George Harrison gets, gets thrown home, deep deported, sent home on a ferry, has his tail between his legs and, and goes home, and the parents are just livid. George goes to truck driver uh, to electrician school. Paul goes to a truck driver apprentice school for all of one week. John sulks in his room. Pete Best, who's really sort of the hero of the band, whose mother gives them a gig. And then in December, late December 1960, they do what they call a small beer at Liverpool. They go to this place called Litherland Town Hall. They do a concert, not even their own music, Scott. And all of a sudden, the crowd rushes the stage, frenzied boys and girls. And, and the next week they get $9 instead of $8 for the whole group. Uh, and then 1961 is just a disastrous year. I mean, nobody notices them. And Bill Harry, their buddy, their high school journalist, much like you and I were, uh, starts pumping them up in a magazine called Mersey Beat. Then he does the unthinkable. There are 200 boy bands in Liverpool. He rigs the poll and makes the Beatles number one. 
and it goes on and on. I mean, uh, it's, yeah. And you just, in, in 60 <laughs> seconds, you describe so many times where it all could have fallen apart. But let's go back to the beginning, and you mentioned when they were teenagers, the quarrymen. Now, John Lennon was was playing, and this is when he met Paul McCartney. He was part of this group called the Quarrymen. Uh, t- talk about their first meeting, which almost didn't happen itself. Well, Quarrymen is uh, was from the Quarry Middle School. It was like you and I taking some high school buddies and saying, let's make a band, except this time they had washboards, if anybody out there remembers washboards. Uh, they, they played washboards, uh, T-chest basses, uh, uh, skiffle-type uh, ukuleles, uh, they were just be- real raw, and John was first one. The other three or four, or five, six, seven, eight, nine, all eventually quit the band. And then one day in the summer of 1957, it is said by eyewitnesses, and I, you know, I go by eyewitnesses, and eyewitnesses say there was a young man riding on an English racer bicycle. They, this is what they say, with a guitar case on the left hand side of the handlebar. And he was riding without holding the handlebar, this is what they say, with a large comb, combing his jet black hair and looking for girls at the same time. <laughs> that, that was James Paul McCartney. He arrives at this fair. They meet up, John and he meet up. They don't like each other tremendously. They never really loved each other, okay? And he teaches them how to, how to uh, tune a guitar, and he plays a few songs for him. And the next thing you know, and this is a great story, Rod Davis the bass guitarist, who's a great musician, by the way, is kicked out of the band. Forward, fast forward to 2007. Rod Davis is now a champion senior surfer. He's almost 70 years old. He's in Brighton, and he's swimming, and he comes out of the water, and his friends say, hey, Paul McCartney's here walking his dog. And he goes up to Paul McCartney and says, I'm sure you don't remember me. And uh, McCartney says, well, who are you, mate? And he introduced himself. He says, I'm Rod Davis. I was the guy kicked out of the band to make way for you. And, and McCartney says, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry about that. Did it, did it affect your life? I feel badly for that. Did, was it a bad turn in your life? He said, well, I became a professor, and I did pretty well. I went to Cambridge. But, uh, and he said, it's great to see you again. He says, I'm really sorry if I pushed you out of the band years ago. So so McCartney gets in, they bring George Harrison, who's McCartney's right. buddy. McCartney and, was, was friends, got, went to the same school as, right. as George Harrison, but George was younger than everyone else. Well, you know, in high school, as in all parts of life, uh, a person who's in 11th grade or 10th grade, and if you're a senior, they don't have anything to do with you. You know how high school mm-hmm. is. So at that t- point of life, George was viewed as the, the kid, okay? And they brought him in, and there was one thing George Harrison brought to that little band, that nobody will ever, ever be able to equate. He had this ability to listen to the sounds of the guitar. And for his entire life, he was about that guitar. When the guitar gently weeped, he was serious about it. It was all, it was, it was his whole life. And he brought this music. And if you look at the Ed Sullivan tapes or anything, or listen to my tapes with them, George is always talking about music. His ear is always down. His head is cocked listening to the song. He's not really looking at the audience that much. And George Harrison, in my view, in my time with them, was one of the most extraordinarily quiet human beings I ever met in my life, except when he had something to say. I could tell in the book you really liked George Harrison. I liked George because George, uh, they're all, all four of them were wonderful people. The level of superficiality in that band was so low, it was unbelievable compared to the people we meet in life. But there was no, there were no airs about that man. And George Harrison, I want to tell you something, Scott, he never said anything 
unless there was a meaning to it. Example, we're flying from Minneapolis to, to, uh, to Portland, Oregon. It's early in the evening in Portland. I'm looking out at the window, getting a rare bunch of sleep. It was the Beatles used to terrorize me with uh, ice cubes and mashed potatoes and <laughs> stuff like that. I was their straight kind of whatever, the yin, yin to the yang. And I'm looking out, and I see a little fire in the side. I'm going to tell you a story about this airplane that will blow your mind because it's not in this book. Uh, I look outside, and I see this Electra was not a particularly safe airplane. And I, I look outside, I see a fire in the right engine. I walk up to the flight deck to quietly advise the pilots, but they're having a scotch and soda in the back with the Beatles. I go and tell them very quietly. They don't want to create a panic, but they did have an emergency precautionary landing. There was foam on the runway. There were ambulances there. There were fire trucks. And George Harris, first of all, John yelled out, I'm going to heaven with Buddy Holly tonight. (laughs) Buddy Holly, of course, died in a plane crash. And then George said to me, Larry, you can quote me. And I have this on tape from the next day. If anything should happen in this airplane, it's Beatles and children first. <laughs> and, and, I, and so, you know, I, I love the guy. He was just the two the two favorites to me were the two who are not here, sadly. And um, and they were just so honest. They were just so brutally honest people. You know, John Lennon said in public what he thought in private, as you know, from the all the politician interviews you've done in your career. That's very refreshing, but extremely dangerous. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because I I mentioned very early on that uh, the Beatles were not as they have been described over the years for the most part. I mean, uh, you often hear this this tale of them rising from poverty, and other than Ringo, Richard Starkey, that wasn't the case. Well, the truth of the matter is that after World War II, uh, the the parents of uh, George Harrison and Paul McCartney and the splintered parents, the two fathers and two mothers of John Lennon, lived in what you might call middle-class America. They didn't have a lot, but they didn't have a little. They were they had opportunity, and that's what happened. It was a post-war society. Ringo was a different story. His father died. His mother worked as a barkeep till all hours of the morning to su- to support him. He was very sick, and he had all kinds of cases of different kinds of uh, almost a tuberculosis form of tuberculosis, uh, and they were poor. Uh, there's no question about it. The others were wealthy enough to be able to buy a guitar or help their kids out. They still were not exactly uh, super upper upper crust wealthy, uh, but they were middle-class background. They, they brought their kids up well, for the most part. Uh, John's, John's uh, youth was much different, though, because John was on his own, and John was a milkman as a little boy, and he would walk through the streets of Liverpool with a cigarette dangling from his mouth on Menlove Avenue where he lived, and he would only think about two or three things that day, how he was going to torment his teachers, the erotic pictures he would draw of them and leave at their desks, (laughs) Uh, the principal who he hated, Mr. Pobjoy, who told him, you will fail. Uh, He was an angry guy, and I think even though there was a father who did care about him, by the way, um, uh, not having a, a male figure in his house, like for anybody, would would have an impact. And so he was an angry guy. He he was tortured in many ways. He did things he wanted to do. His his aunt Mimi, who brought him up, for the most part, was very strict. And wh- every day, John, when he was about eleven, would climb over the fence to this orphanage. Now we don't use that word anymore, but that's what they called it then. Orphanage. Which was called? Well, Strawberry Field was the yeah. name of it. 
uh, was the name of the location of it. But it was very interesting because he'd come back over the fence, and Aunt Mimi would say to him sternly, John, I do not want you to go with those boys, those boys being orphans. You know, America has, despite our wonderful world we live in here, we do, like most people, stereotype people. And kids who didn't have fathers or mothers were, were stereotyped. They were victimized, and they were called orphans because they truly were. But that, that was, you know, don't go with those boys. So he got sick of this. And he would come over this, the fence and come over the tree and get into the backyard. And one day she said, John, I told you so many times, I do not want you playing with those boys. And he said to her, it's nothing to get hung about. Sounds familiar. <laughs> and but he had this he had this incredible desire to be different. And when I met him, the times that I knew him, which was sixteen years, uh, he was a man who number one never forgot, never forgot anything. I mean, to give you an example, my mother died in the summer of nineteen sixty four. She died from the impact of multiple sclerosis. George Harris, George uh, Paul's mother died when he was fourteen. She had uh, breast cancer, and John's mother was killed when he was seventeen. And now, you know, you got three guys on a plane all talking about holes in their lives and what happened. And to me, it was just a disaster. It was a disaster all my life to have, not have a mom. And, uh, but he never forgot. In 1975, he was fighting a deportation order from the Ford-slash-Nixon administrations. And uh, I was trying to talk him into coming down, along with a salesperson from the station, to do a charity marathon at Channel 6 in Philadelphia. You know, I was the first anchor there at Action News, and um, the very proud to say there when we we became number one in a very tough marketplace. And haven't lost it since. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been, uh, when I competed against them later, I was haunted by my own success. It was kind of interesting. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, I'm very proud of all the people there and, uh, and all the people in Philadelphia TV. But um, th- they, had, um, they had an is- interesting situation. They were raising... Uh, Money And I said, come on down. So he takes a subway train to the regular Amtrak uh, metro liner, they called him in those days. And I pick him up, and I have a limousine for him. And he said, hey, you need a limousine? limousine? I could have gone in a cab. Very straightforward guy. And he comes to the back of the station, and there's 15,000 people show up. And he's, uh, people, he's, he's auctioning off his socks. He's doing this. And he did it because of me, because of my connection. He remembered that day was a landmark day in the history of that television station in that town. Frank Rizzo, the mayor of Philadelphia, who's got, you know, was a, a absolutely fantastic person who has been reviled in history, sadly. Uh, you know, history does change things. Uh, Mumi Abu-Jamal was uh, honored by the government of France when he was a cold-blooded killer. And, uh, you know, Rizzo was a great guy. So Rizzo calls me up. He says, I'm sending the stakeout squad, which is the SWAT team. I said, now, why would you send the stakeout squad to 4100 City Line Avenue when you know it's going to attract attention. And these were sharpshooters in the osteopathic hospital in these places. And he says, because a guy like Lennon, who's so accessible, he could get shot. Mm. I'll never forget that. But anyway, that night, Lennon said, why don't I do go on your show? And I said, okay, uh, what do you want to do? He says, well, I'll do the weather. And he did the weather. And it was one of the more unusual moments in Philadelphia history. <laughs> I've seen that picture. I haven't seen the video. The video's great. The video, I saw him on Mike Douglas' show, which was awesome in Philadelphia at that time. I think they, they taped that at uh, KYW. They at the- K- KYW, uh, and uh, he had a very, very good time coming in there. 
But I, wa- I want to tell you when we get a moment today about what they were really like. Well, that's, let's start with that. We have about uh, three minutes before we have to break. Uh, what were they really like? Because I'm going to, you know, this is, this is the reputation or how they were labeled by the press. John was the genius, but uh, John was the cheeky one. And, uh, John, I, I, I heard that interview you did where he explained what cheeky meant in, right. in Britain. Uh, Paul was the cute one. Uh, George was the quiet one, and Ringo was the sad one. Your book dispels all those <laughs> well, all that, those descriptions. That's all a bunch of nothing. Uh, first of all, Ringo was the second most intellectually curious of the Beatles. How about that? Ringo could hold his hold his his uh, hand with with Terry Madonna in any political conversation. Really? Oh yes, and you too. Ringo Starr and Terry Madonna. Though there's a team. Well, they were both short. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but uh, the, you know, Ringo was very much into peace and love, and that wasn't just a bunch of uh, BS. He was really, really uh, into it. And also, by the way, very intense about his feelings about love and, and family and other human beings. He had uh, another family before this, and he, he got divorced. But his, he's been married to the same woman for a long time now. They're very proud of their families together. Um, great guy. Uh, much more occlusive in later life. And by the way, looks, I, I know he's older than Paul. He looks great. Ringo looks great. He's taking care of himself, all right? Uh, I would say George Harrison uh, is quiet, was the quiet one, but very deep in his feelings about spirituality and life. He was the guy who probably thought of TM, or Transcendental Meditation, before he even encountered it. He just wanted to be very spiritual. He looked at life as a... Uh, he didn't compartmentalize life, and he loved people. I really liked him. Uh, Paul McCartney was a man who never met a mirror, a comb, or an audience he didn't, he didn't like. And I will tell you, I'll tell you something about him. If Paul McCartney had never succeeded as a superstar that he is in the world of music and entertainment, he would have been the greatest public relations executive in the history of the world. If he were working for this this radio and TV station, station here, he would have raised more money than you can imagine. He was just the most incredibly entertaining person, and he always cared. I'll give you an example. The groups that opened the shows, they were great groups, the Righteous Brothers. Uh, Jackie DeShannon, before your time, uh, the, the, she was the Katy Perry of her time. The Exc- oh, I remember the Jackie Ex- Shannon, The Exciters, yeah. uh, the, for, for, uh, three bl- black young ladies who were uh, had a, a super hit called Tell Him, Way before, way before the Supremes and the Ronettes, okay? Uh, and all these groups were there on this trip, and they were being dissolved and, and sublimated because no one wanted to listen to them. The girls would scream, we want the Beatles, we want the Beatles. And so every night, Paul McCartney, led by Paul McCartney, they go up the aisle, sit down by them on their chairs, and make sure they're okay. I thought that that was a lot of... A lot of courage and a lot of compassion for a guy his age. And, of course, Lennon, I mean, I can go on forever about Lennon. But, but it's, as far as going back to Paul for just a moment uh, quickly, uh, you say in the book that even though John was the leader of the band, that from the very beginning, even when he was very young, that Paul showed those leadership qualities and that uh, even throughout his life that uh, he was the serious one as far as business goes. Well, he was a businessman. There's no question about it. Last week uh, at the Grammys, uh, he didn't play a Beatles song with Ringo Starr. He played a song from his own album with Ringo Starr, which I thought was very unusual. 
but Paul is a businessman. He's got an, an ego that is very healthy, but I will say this, is always challenged. He's a man who appreciates money. He knew that he grew up poor, poor, poor to him compared to now. He understands the value of earning things and of ethics. He likes people who work hard. He was brought up by a, a mom who was fantastic and a father who was extremely loving but had some difficulties gambling and other things. He understands the value of a pound or a dollar, and he loves people who have standards. Uh, he, he, here's a guy, by the way, and this is a fact. He grew up, and we, I'd love to talk about this after our break, in, in the hatred that existed in Liverpool in post-World War II, who grew up in an anti-Semitic, racist environment, okay, who married two Jewish women, who fought for segre- to, to end segregation at the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville. Uh, very, it's just, uh, to me, fascinating how all of them overcame this post-World War II uh, period of hatred. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Larry, the reason I played uh, Long Tall Sally and Twist and Shout, those songs were significant in the early days of the Beatles. By the way, two songs not written by John Lennon or Paul McCartney, but they were significant, especially Long Tall Sally. You played a couple roles, didn't it? Well, Long Tall Sally, of course, was not their song, um, and uh, Twist and Shout was from the Isley Brothers. Uh, they were significant because the they they really created the Beatles as a ba- a great band as opposed to just great songwriters. Uh, the uh, Twist and Shout at Ferris Bueller's Day Off it was immortalized as a Beatles song. And in reality, it wasn't their song, but they made it their song. The same thing with, with uh, t- uh, Long Tell Sally. But there's another song in the first Sullivan show uh, to show the adults, quote, the adults, they, they put in Till There Was You, which is not a Beatles song either. It's from uh, the Music Man, the right. great music. Robert, I always wonder why they did that. Well, they did that just to show, well, we, can, we have range here. We're not just a rock right. and roll band. Right. Now, remember, I want to I just explain something to you. Let's really go back in history. The history says the Beatles were an instant sensation. Not true. The Beatles were uh, very, very loved by thousands and thousands of young women who were convinced that each one of them was singing to them. They would pull their hair. They, their eyes would glisten with, <clears throat> with tears, not from uh, crying, but from the fact that if you open your eyes long enough and you keep your eyelids open long enough, you're going to get liquid pouring down. It's like being in a trance. They, the guttural screams, I've never seen anything like that in my life. They were not the kind of screams you would hear for a football team or a baseball team or a college team. They were guttural right from the inside. And when I reported constantly this year during interviews that every one of them was considered that, thinking that one of them was singing to them, I would get these wonderful emails and tweets from people who would say, you mean he wasn't singing to me? <laughs> you, you shattered my, my, my memories. And, and, but, but there was something else that was going on there that people really didn't understand. And that's the fact that the Beatles were the great, a great band that when you listened to them, and you saw that on the first Sullivan show, talk about ice in your veins. 
They're on there with 70 million people watching them. George Harrison is sick. He could barely talk. Yeah, it's strep throat. Right? Strep throat. Yeah. And they go on with this, this concert, and they are as good as they are on the record. Now, you saw the pardon Rolling Stones fans, but you saw the Rolling Stones in the Super Bowl a couple Horrible. years ago. Yeah. Well, they can't sing yeah. right now. Yeah. They probably never could. They're just good. Okay, they're fun to watch. But so, so the Beatles were a great band. The other thing was that he did say to me, Epstein did say to me, that Larry, the children of the 21st century, would be listening to the Beatles. But here's the bottom line to all of this. The Beatles didn't know they were the Beatles. This is the great point I can, I can consistently make. In 1964, uh, for actually from 62 to, to 70 when they broke up, the Beatles always felt the bubble was going to burst. So they split up. Three of them think they can do more by themselves than they d- did collectively. One of them, Ringo Starr, feels like he's part of a divorce. That's what he told me. And he was t- desperate. 19 years of drug use, okay? Even his wife, Barbara Bach, got involved in that, and now she's healthy. And they finally got healthy. So the Beatles at that time in history were viewed as a very successful band. But they were not viewed as the iconic, oh, my goodness, the Beatles that people talk about, the Beatles, that they talk about like Mozart and Beethoven today. I mean, could you imagine a band in 1964 still being played from 1914? Not going to happen, all right? So here we have all generations. That was the Beatles Fest over the weekend, and we had people in their 30s and 20s. Uh, The bulk of people were in their 30s, 40s, and 50s at this group. And so a whole other generation is going to be around for another 50 years. But I want to bring you back, everybody, to the way it really was. My father pulled me aside when I was leaving on, on uh, September 18th. I took the plane from Miami to San, August 18th, Miami to San Francisco for the start of the great summer tour. And he said to me, it's a World War II veteran in the foxholes, okay, battling days after Normandy uh, on the coast there. My father said to me, Larry, watch your back. They are a menace to society. They're going to bring this country down. <laughs> okay, and that was based. That was based, Scott, strictly, strictly on the uh, concept that they were some deviant, bizarre group with strange hair, and the hair was going to bring everybody. Down. When John Lennon looked at me, I was wearing a Robert Hall suit. Uh, okay. Tell the story the first time you met John Lennon. Yeah, well, I met the three of them in a room, and uh, this was way after I first met them in Miami. And he looked at me, and he said, uh, very, you know, typical John way, who are you? And I said, uh, who I am? I introduced myself. He looked at my shoes. He looked up in my Robert Hall suit, my plaid brown suit with my skinny Kennedy tie. And he said, my friend, you look like a round peg in a square hole. You look like a nerd from the 1950s. And you said... And I said, well, at least I don't look sloppy and unkempt like you do with the hair all out of control and, you know, just the way you dress and cigarette dangling from your mouth. And uh, he just looked at me and stared at me like, who is this guy? And I asked him questions about the following subjects in that interview. The war in Vietnam, immigration. England had been lambasting us for our racial problems, and and I was talking about the immigration problems where immigrants were being rejected at that time in England. The Queen, his favorite subject, uh, the the assassination of President Kennedy, uh, all the things that were going on, including a story that was very dear to my heart, the Cuban refugee exodus from Castro's Cuba. And, of course, he was sympathetic to Castro, not realizing he was a butcher. And then Castro later put a, a, a 
after he died, a statue of John in the main square of Havana. But he bought, but he banned the the, uh, the Beatles music. So anyway, we had this really caustic event, and I walked down the hall with my forty-one pound tape recorder over my uh, shoulder, and uh, I was very depressed. I figured I'll never see the inside of this plane. And he grabs me by the uh, the shoulder and spins me around and gives me a hug. John Lennon does not give people hugs. Okay, it just doesn't happen. And I didn't know that at the time. He said, I'm just sorry, mate. I'm really excited to travel with you. And the rest is history. And we just had some great times and uh, made a lot of news. We have uh, some calls here. Leanne is in York. Uh, Leanne, I understand that uh, you actually got to speak with the Beatles in Philadelphia? I did. Um, somehow, three young girls, I lived in Reading at the time, Teenagers went to a phone booth, dialed the number. I'm not sure how we got that number. It was probably blasted on the media somehow. And were connected directly to their room and got to speak to all four of them. It was an amazing experience for three screaming young fans in a phone booth. (laughs) Who was your favorite at the time? George has been, was then, and will always be my favorite. I, I like that quiet, spiritual uh, person that he was then and, and always was. I've, he's always remained my favorite. So I have to ask you a question. Let's take yourself back to 1964 or 65, and you do get to meet George. Would you leave the country with him? Oh, and a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the way it was. <laughs> yeah. hey, thank he you very, was amazing. Thank you very much for your call. I have a... You know, this is a, a clip that uh, where you're actually talking to John. Now, these guys, and you detail this in the book, of the hours they worked, and this is uh, on stage, would be enough to kill anyone. Right. But as you said earlier, I mean, th- some of the places they were staying, in a bathroom, and the work they had to do for their keep, and they were making very little money. But once they made it here to America, and this is in 1964, I believe, where you're talking to John about whether he actually gets tired on stage. I know you're about to get set for a big show here in Philadelphia, and the people are pouring in outside. When you go on a tour like this, and you go from day to day, from town to town, does it drain you any as far as your your ability to get out on stage and do your best? Have you found this out? Not on stage, you know, because there's, there's something to matter. We always get dead nervous before we go on stage. And nine times out of ten, we suddenly feel tired about half an hour before when we've got to get changed. And that's just something that's been happening for two years. We always suddenly, all of a sudden, everybody's tired. I'm changing into the suits and putting the shirts on. You feel, oh, no. And then just as soon as you get on, it's all right. John Lennon, uh, thank you very, very much. We're backstage at Philadelphia. This is Larry Kane. Thank you again. Thank you, Larry. God bless you. Jolly good. (laughs) Well, there's a couple things there. First of all, it shows that you had a real good rapport with John Lennon. And secondly, it's almost like every interview he ended that way with some kind of joke or, you know, trying to be funny. Well, they liked me. Uh, they liked me not because I was like them, because I certainly was the total opposite. I was the nerd from the 1950s, that John explained. They liked me because I was very straightforward. Even in the famed 12-minute film interview that I've done that you can see on YouTube, uh, part of my second book, uh, where I was uh, asking them about questions, and they were laughing at me. And everybody said, why did they laugh at you like that? They really like you. And uh, the fact is they liked the fact that I was very straightforward. In fact, it was hard for me to hold my, my face because sometimes they crack me up. He was a, a man who knew that when he I was interviewed, he, he when I interviewed him, we're going to get something out of it. 
I asked him there about the strain. Okay, I was, I was. That's why they sent me. I didn't want to go. You know, my station. I didn't want to go because I figured it was a waste of my time to be with a band, as I said to my bosses, that would be here in September and gone in November. And, and that, boy, that was a good good prediction. That was, yeah, that was a good call. Uh, and uh, and so uh, it's, and Ed Rendell is going to be elected governor again, you know. But I <laughs> but I but I but I uh, I just really when I when I thought about it, had a wonderful relationship with them. And the relationship was based on the fact that I was asking them questions that, that titillated their intellect, as opposed to just, you know, what did you eat for breakfast? What do you like in a hemline? I have to tell you something about uh, these guys that a lot of people don't know. Uh, they had their flaws, all of us do as human beings. But from a standpoint of the, uh, the kind of people they were, the character and quality of their, the content of their character, as Martin Luther King would say, uh, they they were uh, very unusual. I mean, they they did things. Yeah, they had their late nights, okay? And I'm not going to go into that because there were, three of them were single and the other didn't care, okay? Uh, but, <laughs> John was one who was married. Yeah, yeah he was married. So, uh, you know, I, I, did I follow them into bedrooms? No. Did I see them walk into rooms with, with, with women? Yes. Were they underage? No. Uh, they, were, uh, they were just very careful about what they did, but they were having a good time. They were, they were young kids. But I will tell you one thing about them that shocked me is the, how polite they were, how in every town they talked to the young lady that talked to us just now, uh, and they talked to them as real people. They went to their, they met their fan club representatives in every town, and they would bring them backstage. By the way, the Beatles asked for three things in their contract. They asked for a cots for the dressing rooms in case they wanted to take a nap, fresh towels, and Coca-Cola. So today, I'm sure that uh, Katy Perry would be asking for a leopard skin uh, uh, rug and all kinds of yeah, other things. Yeah, it's a little bit different than uh, that it was then. Let's take another phone call. Chad is uh, from York. Chad, what's uh, what's your question or comment? Hi, thank you, Larry and Scott, for taking my call. Yes, I, you're um, welcome. I had read some some time ago about their the Beatles' introduction to America and how significant it was uh, in terms of gender, and how the Beatles, unlike many of the American music artists of the time, were not expressing a masculinity, but rather they were expressing a femininity, and that really met with the women at a time that was very ripe for and, and needed by women, and in a way that they they were, in, 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 in a way, kind of women on stage, because they were covering... You know, women's uh, girl girl band songs and so forth. And so I don't, maybe Larry could just speak to that. Well, you have, a, you have a what's your name again? Chad. 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 Very interesting point. Uh, I I wanted to tell somebody, everybody that if you anybody grew up when I grew up, that in the 1950s, women were not supposed to be expressing their emotions in public, especially uh, sexually oriented or sexually tinged uh, uh, emotions. So when I saw this go on, I was trying to figure out what, what's going on here. I mean, from the people I graduated high school with, to come out to a, a group, to expose their emotions, to yeah. yell and scream, okay, uh, to feel this, this, uh, this uh, symbiotic relationship with either one person or four people was extraordinary. And I, I want to I just explain to you that when the Beatles went on stage, they unleashed a fury. And the fury uh, came to us back in different ways in 1969, 1968, during protest and, and advocacy for war, during the sexual revolution. Let's face it. I'm going to be very honest with everybody here. The, the dates that you had in 1960 
if you were lucky to get find a nice person to take out, were much different than the dates you had in 1966. Needless, I'm not going to say anything more. Okay, things change very quickly. And I think the Beatles play a role in that. There's another thing they played a role in that I mentioned in my first book. that I got ripped apart by the New York Times on this. I suggested that the Beatles were a tonic for the assassination of the president. That here we had all this stuff going on. And it's very hard. I mean, Scott, you remember a little bit. But, I mean, we're in this funk and we're really depressed in this country. I mean, really depressed. Whether you like Kennedy or didn't like Kennedy, a president was shot before our eyes. And all of a sudden, on December 26, four weeks and a couple of days later, uh, this music is being played. I want to hold your hand. I please please me. And, and you know, it's, it's, it was a diversion. It's like sports. It was a great diversion. And I truly believe there was a connection between the tragedy that occurred and the Beatles' success and the fact they did it. Chad, thank you very much for your call. I do want to bring up something, though. Brian Epstein, did he pronounce his name Epstein or Epstein? It all depends. Okay. Brian Epstein uh, was gay, and uh, there has always been speculation that he was in love with uh, John Lennon. Uh, Did you ever see any of that? Well, first of all, I didn't know he was gay. And to be very honest with you, I'm going to bring you back to that time, too. Knowing someone who was gay or homosexual, which was the expression used at the time, was rare. Because anybody who was gay would never talk about it, ever. Mm-hmm. So I did not know Brian was gay. And he called me into his uh, room at the Beverly Hills Cottages in 1965. And John Lennon said something to me. And he really said this. And I didn't really get it. He said, watch out when you go meet him tonight because he wants more than your big nose. And I said, what? I, didn't, I honestly didn't know. I know that sounds silly. So we, had, uh, we listened to some classical music. And he was very big into classical music. That's when he told me they're going to be around forever. And we had a really wonderful session. And it was very, very pleasant and businesslike. And then toward the end of it, he took out a glass, a bottle of wine, and he poured the wine. He said, and he raised a toast and said, this is for you and me, to you and me. And I knew then that there was something beyond because he liked me. And uh, I didn't feel that way in the same way. So, uh, number one, being gay in Europe in England was uh, jailable. You go to you go to you go to jail if you say you're gay. Number two, uh, it was it, the country was very repressed then, much more than we were in England about uh, uh, same-sex uh, relationships. So you had to hide this. He was not in love with John. He was in love with every one of them. Okay, and when I say in love, he was crazy about them. He looked at them, uh, I would say, more as brothers than lovers. He looked at them as, uh, I want to be like them. I want to be your man, okay? And, um, and then he basically understood that they were really going to be superstars. And he understood that they would be superstars way much longer. So the, he had two things going against him in Liverpool. He was Jewish and he was gay. He had two things going for him in London. He was Jewish and he was gay. And that helped him really penetrate the music world. But, well, of course, most of the most of the artists there said, forget it. Most of the, uh, you know, that George Martin, their great arranger, had never r- arranged a, a piece of music ever. That he was the, and you'll love this one, he was the arranger for Peter Sellers. Yeah. He had just done comedy shows. Yeah. So he, so he got through to England, fought to London finally, but he had to live with us. And let me just tell you a little bit about Liverpool. Liverpool is a city that has the tallest Catholic cathedral in the world. 
It also has a mammoth Protestant church. They face each other on a boulevard, head to head. Liverpool is a city. Imagine Philadelphia or Pittsburgh having two football stadiums and that the, the municipalities or the state help finance them. Not one, but two. Imagine three blocks away from Lincoln Financial Field, there's a second Lincoln Financial Field with the same amount of people built by the municipality. That's what's in Liverpool. There's the, there's the stadium of 45,000 people for the Liverpool Reds, also known as the Protestant team. There's a stadium four blocks away for the Everton Blues, all members of the Premier League. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. It's different, you know, yeah. so they, so so you know when you think about this, uh, he did a remarkable job. I mean, he was he was in the business of him and John having a relationship is a bunch of garbage. Yeah. Real quick, Abigail, we weren't able to get her on the line. She said, "Is it true that they they couldn't read music?" It is true they couldn't read music. So they did it by in, ear. In, it's all by ear. In, now McCartney can now, but in terms of the way, I still can't read music. They couldn't read, uh, you know, uh, sheet music. So basically everything was interpreted for them, and they just had this wonderful sound. By the way, a lot of great artists are that way, too. Right, right. Another quick, uh, if I can get a a quick response from you, where did the hair come from? The hair is uh, very simply a result. uh, There's so many theories about that, but there was a guy named Jurgen Bulmer who loved the, uh, the, the left bank of Paris and Montmartre. And they befriended him in uh, Germany. They visited him in, in France. And he started cutting their hair that way. And it was highly influenced by Astrid Kircher, who was... Uh, we didn't even talk about Stuart Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe's yeah. girlfriend. But that's where they found it. There's so many different theories about it. And the name The Beatles uh, came from, very simply, uh, the B- Buddy Holly and the Crickets, uh, The Beatles. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. There is a new poll on the presidential race almost every day now, but there aren't as many polls that give us a snapshot of what Pennsylvania voters are thinking. The Morning Call Muhlenberg College poll is the latest. We're joined by Dr. Christopher Boric, director of the Muhlenberg College Institute of Public Opinion and a political analyst. Dr. Boric, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Scott. One of the reasons that uh, this poll is so important is that uh, Pennsylvania has been pointed to as one of the key states to win for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Is Pennsylvania more important for one candidate over the other? Yeah, I think, Scott, uh, when you look at the different paths to 270 electoral votes for, for Trump and Clinton, uh, for Donald Trump, it's hard to really see a path right now, I believe, uh, a legitimate path without Pennsylvania in his total. Um, I think as he looks at places where he can uh, improve upon past Republican candidates in terms of, of turning some states, Pennsylvania has always been central uh, to his his calculus. And uh, and therefore, I think, you know, conversely, uh, for Hillary Clinton, it, it is often called a firewall state, uh, that if she could hold serve here like every other Democrat has done, since 1988, um, she has a good chance of, of building her own coalition to 270. So it, it's obviously important for both, but I think uh, if Donald Trump is, is to have a chance, um, it's probably more important for him. In your poll, Hillary Clinton continues to lead, and this is amongst likely voters, by 9 percent. What do you attribute that lead? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit of the same old, same old. Um, when we look at and compare it to past elections, right now where Hillary Clinton is strongest uh, 
uh, is in the southeast part of the state, the voter-rich Philadelphia suburbs. Um, that's where she's she's holding a commanding lead over Donald Trump. Trump wins, as, as you'd expect, in the central and northern part of the states. Uh, outside of Allegheny in the southwest, he, he dominates. Um, but it's in the southeast where he really, really uh, struggles. Uh, those voters who are, are often um, higher educated, um, they are um, in, in many ways voters that have shown in the past that they can uh, swing to either party, um, but have been trending Democratic over recent years, um, have been a real uh, boost to Hillary Clinton in, in this race, as, as they have been to Democrats in the past. Whoever wins those counties usually wins statewide offices in the state. And right now, uh, he's she's winning there, uh, and that's boosted her her, her lead um, to, to where we found it last week. Yeah, that, uh, you know, when you're talking about the southeastern counties, uh, the most populated counties in the state, other than Allegheny County, where Pittsburgh is located, are in, in the southeast. I think back to Ed Rendell's first uh, election win, where he won only a handful of counties, but they happened to be the most populated counties in the state. You know, and Chris, you kind of touched on this, but this has been a turnaround because those suburban Philadelphia counties were considered Republican strongholds, not exactly conservative Republican strongholds, but moderate Republicans. What's happened? Yeah, you're right. Historically, Scott, that's exactly what it is. They were, uh, you know, some of those counties since the the Civil War were Republican strongholds in places like Montgomery County and and, and Bucks County. Um, when you look back, it really was when we saw the change in, in voter registration uh, in those counties and really a clear change in patterns was about 10 years ago. It was um, late in the George W. Bush term. Uh, you saw an exodus of many uh, former Republicans into the Democratic Party. They may have voted Democrat in some elections before that, but they formally made the change then. And as you've noted, it, you could see on, on a map, an electoral map of Pennsylvania in, in, in gubernatorial races and in, in presidential races and Senate races that you may have have 45, 50 counties red, so most of the state looks red, but it's those blue counties in the southeast, including the Lehigh Valley, uh, which we often include Northampton and Lehigh counties, uh, and, and out west Allegheny County, and that's where the voters are, or, or a lion's share of the voters are, and as long as they remain blue. It's mathematically a difficult probability for uh, Republicans to find enough voters elsewhere. Um, Donald Trump thinks he can bring in some new voters, and that that certainly could could help. Um, And he can maybe get uh, a share of Democrats uh, to defect from the Democratic Party. I think there's some evidence he, he can do that, too. But he still needs to make inroads in places like Montgomery Bucks. Um, Delaware County to really change the math in the state. Hillary Clinton's lead, as I mentioned, is about 9 percent, and that is amongst likely voters. It is reduced somewhat, though, just a little bit smaller, when third-party candidates Gary Johnson, the Libertarian, and Jill Stein of the Green Party are included. Uh, How much of a reduction are we looking at? Yeah, well, in our poll, it was only about a point. Um, But again, it's, it's one poll, and we'll see lots more polls trying to to add to that, but I think that's that's in, in many ways the wild card um, for for this race. Where, where do uh, people like Gary Johnson or Jill Stein 
uh, draw from? Where are they going to take votes from when we get into the matchup? In this one, there's a very modest uh, aid to Donald Trump. Um, we'll see how that how that changes out. You look back, um, you know, both Jill Stein and and Gary Johnson were on the ballot in in 2012, and between them, they, you know, got close to two points. Um, so it was it was a trivial impact in a five point uh, or so win for Barack Obama here. Um, you know, if the race gets closer uh, and and they start to draw votes, they could be a, 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 an important uh, player. Neither of them is going to win the state. Could they have an effect on who wins? I, I think that's still um, a possibility. Well, see, that's the difference with 2012 in that uh, you had an incumbent president. Uh, and this year you have two historically unpopular candidates. So is there the chance that uh, Gary Johnson or Jill Stein could have more of an impact because these two Democrats, Republicans, the, the candidates are so unpopular? Oh, you're right. The, the, the numbers are historically low. And even in this poll, that I think was good news for Hillary Clinton. She has high unfavorables in the, in the uh, mid to upper 50s in terms of percentage of voters that don't like her. It just as so happens that more people dislike Donald Trump. And that, of course, opens the door, as you said, Scott, for more people to give these third-party candidates a look. And as we see in, in our poll and a lot of other polls, compared to you know four years ago, they're, they're receiving a, a much greater share of the, of the predicted vote. Um, just how big that will be and just um, you know, where those votes come from, of course, is going to have an enormous impact on on what happens in in November, but the dissatisfaction that you know with with both candidates is is real, um, and will that manifest in, in even more support for third party alternatives? Um, is something to keep a close eye on as we move towards November. Let's talk about the demographics and education levels. What you found as far as support goes for uh, Clinton or Trump? People with with college degrees, master's degrees professional degrees um, are breaking in, in very large numbers towards Hillary Clinton. Um, on the other hand, individuals um, uh, the without a, a college degree, uh, Trump performs better. In our poll, if you broke it out, we didn't break it out per se by white um, voters who do not have a college degree. In that particular group, Trump dominates. Um, and again, a lot of that is going to come down to turnout. Traditionally, higher educated voters turn out um, in, in higher numbers. They're, they're more regular voters. Uh, individuals with lower educational attainment tend to be uh, less reliable. Donald Trump thinks that group uh, will show up. I want to thank Dr. Christopher Bork, director of Muhlenberg College's Institute of Public Opinion, for being with us today. Dr. Bork, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Scott. Coming up on tomorrow's program, you remember that the murder that occurred in Franklin County along I-81 last year. The Carlisle Sentinel has done an investigation into the man who was accused of that murder and has found some things that are quite disturbing. That's coming up on uh, tomorrow's program. I'm Scott Lamar. Talk to you tomorrow.